Our second reading this morning, our gospel reading this morning, comes from John chapter 18. I will begin at verse 38 and uh, read forward through chapter 19, verse 16. Hear the word of God. Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer, so Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, you are the author of all scripture. And we ask today that you would speak to us through the reading and the proclamation of your word. Let us hear your voice. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Originally the... Wow, that coffee is strong. Originally the... uh, Word obscene meant off scene. 
things that were kept out of sight, things that were kept off the stage. Of course, the things that are kept out of sight are often perfectly normal and familiar, but for all of their familiarity, they still are the sorts of things that we don't want paraded around in public view. Since the time of Oscar Wilde and D.H. Lawrence, we have endured a century of the obscene, the off-scene, being shoved into our faces under the guise of authenticity or wit. The most extreme obscenities of our time are the choreographed and internet-distributed images of people being stoned to death crucified, thrown off of tall buildings, burned alive, and beheaded, all to the celebratory shouts of Allahu Akbar. Videos and photographs disseminated with great delight and glee and joy, gruesome executions done in public for the thrill of cheering spectators, for the intimidation of anyone who dare resist the will of the killer. The human heart is a dark place, The human beings are capable of real evil. Liberal optimism that the human race is getting better and better of its own accord, the naive belief that people can reform themselves requires a very selective view of reality. The depictions of violence for entertainment are obscene. I don't understand how people can watch movies Or television programs that show people being killed. And yet gunplay is as common as dirt. It always has been. According to one published report, the average American child will witness 8,000 murders on the screen before they finish elementary school. How can that be normal? How can that be healthy? How can that be godly? The only way to witness the death of another human being, even in fiction, without real psychological distress, is to dehumanize that person and to desensitize your own spirit. To dehumanize another person is a grave sin against our neighbor and against the Creator, and to desensitize our spirit is a grave sin against ourselves and our Creator. I haven't owned a television set in 40 years, and one reason is that television in its casual depiction of violence is obscene. And I refuse to pour that kind of dehumanizing, desensitizing poison into my soul. I have a seven-year-old daughter who goes out into the rain to rescue earthworms in distress. That is the attitude that we should have toward life and living things. For they are made by God and their life comes from Him. Now, I'm not saying that all life is of the same value. I am not a member of PETA. Human life is worth more than earthworm life. But casual disregard for life, the life of animals, the life of children who are still being formed in their mother's wombs, the life of people in distant countries... The life of the aged and the infirm, the life of prisoners, the life even of our bitterest enemies. Casual disregard for life is insulting to God. It defaces the image of God in our own souls and it can only come from the evil one. 
Now, I might be a little off topic here, but I am of the opinion that Christians should be as scandalized by shoot-em-up movies as they are by hardcore pornography. I say all of this to let you know that personally I find the retelling of the passion narrative, the story of the trial, torture, and the slow, cruel, and public execution of Jesus absolutely obscene. And I fear that the story has become so familiar to us that we no longer see how unspeakably grotesque it is. In his 2004 film, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson tried to represent the horror of what happened to Jesus. He tried to get through to people who have been desensitized by constant, casual depictions of violence. And in the process, he made a film that many critics called obscene. Now, it's important for us to notice that all four of the Gospels give detailed accounts of the crucifixion. So we know that God wants this cruel and obscene outrage to be brought to center stage in some way. It is important for us to see the pain and the degradation of Jesus. We can't skip over this part and still understand the gospel. So we need to approach these passion narratives with seriousness and with sensitivity, not glossing over the cruelty, never forgetting that we're talking about the public suffering and murder of a real person. Jesus is not some plaster statue or a pretty painting. He was human just the way we are. And we also need to understand that this gruesome part of Scripture is essential to the gospel. There is no gospel without it. That's why what should be obscene, off-scene, is brought to center stage. There's a reason all four gospels spend so much time on the passion. We get a hint of the reason in Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 17, which say this. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. The good news that the early Christians were willing to die for, the good news that modern martyrs in Syria and North Africa and Iraq are willing to die for, is that God made an atoning sacrifice in the gruesome death of Jesus. Deny that and you deny the atonement. Whitewash the passion and you obliterate the good news. H. Richard Niebuhr, the Christian ethicist who taught for many years at Yale Divinity School, in 1937 published his most famous book. It's called The Kingdom of God in America. And in that work, he wrote his often 
quoted description of the liberal social gospel of his era. He described liberal theology as a tall tale in which, quote, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross, end quote. Now that might sound far-fetched or unkind. It might sound as though Niebuhr is strawmanning the opposition. But Niebuhr, in fact, is talking about his own tribe. He is a liberal theologian teaching in a liberal seminary. He knew what he was talking about. Seventy years after Niebuhr wrote his book, I sat in the office of a pastor of a nearby Presbyterian church and had him say to me with A great sense of moral superiority. We don't sing any of those bloody hymns in this church. I might mention that his church, his bloodless church, closed its door two years ago. And now the building has been sold to a mosque. You couldn't make this stuff up. The blood and the gore of the passion are obscene. But they are in some mysterious way central to the gospel itself. In sports training they say no pain, no gain. Maybe we need to say no blood, no salvation. And so we approach the passion of Christ respectfully, carefully, not discounting its horror. And always asking ourselves the question, why does God want us to see this? Keeping in mind that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Way back when we began this series of sermons through the Gospel of John, I said a number of times that this gospel is primarily about the identity of Jesus. John wants us to know the answer to the question, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? In John 20, 30, the evangelist gives his very purpose in writing his gospel. He says, these things, quote, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. From the very beginning of the gospel, in its beautiful poetic prologue, John pushes the language to its limits to try to communicate the identity of Christ. He writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. In Him was life, and the life was the light of people, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's so beautiful and grand and cosmic and glorious and wonderful. It's one thing to say that Jesus was a carpenter who lived in Nazareth, the son of Mary. It's another thing to say that he was a descendant of King David. It's yet another thing to say that he was an itinerant teacher and a healer famous for his gentleness and his meekness. All of those things are true. All of those facts, in part, answer the question, who is this Jesus? But they don't go far enough. All of those facts don't go far enough. And so John pushes this question of the identity of Jesus to its highest pitch, to a cosmic pitch. 
Jesus is the mind of God. Jesus is the Son of the Father. Jesus is light from light. Jesus is the creator of the universe. And the only appropriate response to this knowledge is worship. Total commitment, complete abandonment of any competitor for our attention. If we have seen the cosmic Christ, what can we do but shout and sing and throw ourselves at Him? Come, let us worship the Lord. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. That is the rapturous and the sweet response of anyone who has been captured by Christ and drawn into His love. But what happens to the person who isn't united to Christ through faith? What happens to that person when he gets a little hint of the cosmic Christ? Well, that's the story that we read this morning from the Gospel of John. And it is a story of fear rather than worship. We will either worship Christ or we will fear Him. Last week we heard Pilate ask Jesus if He were a king, if He were the king of the Jews. This week... We see Pilate present King Jesus to the people who are screaming for his blood. Pilate, who examined Jesus and told the crowd repeatedly, I find no guilt in him, hears the screaming crowd, hears from the screaming crowd that Jesus ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. And Pilate is electrified with fear. Our translation of John 19.8 says... When Pilate heard this statement that Jesus had made himself the Son of God, he was even more afraid. A better translation, because the adjective in this case is actually in the elative rather than the comparative form, would be, he was very much afraid. How do you scare a Roman governor? He was no bumpkin, this is no schoolboy. This is a man who had been around, he had seen things, he had served in military campaigns, and John tells us that he was very much afraid. Matthew 27, 19 adds another little detail. There we read, when Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with this innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Spooky. The dream of Pilate's wife and the insistence of the crowd that Jesus had made himself into the Son of God, these things spook Pilate, as well they should. Pilate imagined that he was getting just another Jewish rabble-rouser in his court. How many had he crucified already? But when he scratches the surface of this one... The light of eternity shoots out of him like a flash in the night. And Pilate is afraid. Who is this Jesus? After he hears what the crowd says about Jesus, Pilate rushes back into his headquarters where Jesus is waiting. And Pilate demands of him, where are you from? This might seem like an odd question. Pilate, of course, knows that Jesus is from Nazareth. It was common knowledge. And in John 19, 19, we'll get there next Sunday, Pilate writes the inscription for the cross, Jesus of Nazareth. 
king of the Jews. Pilate knows that Jesus is from Nazareth, but he says to him in his fear, where are you from? Pilate is asking about the identity of Jesus. He wants to know who this man is by learning something of his origins. And by origins, I don't mean what town he sleeps in. The word in Greek that's being used here is pothen. And it means, from what source have you sprung? There are two other places in the New Testament where this word shows up. First in Matthew 21, 25, where Jesus asks a group of Pharisees, John's baptism, where did it come from? Pothen. Was it from heaven? Or was it of human origin? And the second is in John 8, 14, where Jesus says, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I come from, Pothan, and where I'm going, but you have no idea where I come from, Pothan, and where I'm going. Pilate is spooked. He's very afraid something strange is going on here. His wife is having weird dreams. The crowd who want Jesus dead say that he claims to be the Son of God. And so Pilate asked Jesus, from what source have you sprung? Are you human? Are you an alien? Are you a man? Are you a God? Who is this Jesus? And when Jesus refuses to answer... Pilate reminds him that he has the authority to release him or to put him to death. And Jesus, as cool as a cucumber, says, you have no authority over me unless it be given to you from above. Who is this guy? In our Old Testament reading from the prophet Isaiah, we heard a portion of one of the five suffering servant songs. These messianic prophecies are all poems that describe with alarming detail the passion of Jesus and the way in which that passion would serve to atone for the sins of humankind. These messianic prophecies answer the question, who is this Jesus? Listen to what was said about Jesus of Nazareth 700 years. Years before he was born. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb. He was led to the slaughter. By oppression and by judgment he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. His soul makes an offering for guilt. Out of the anguish of his soul shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and make intercession for transgressors. For transgressors. What the prophet foresaw was that the servant of God would come and that he would be unjustly judged, abused, and killed and that 
in his death, the sins of many people would be taken away. And many people who by every fair accounting would be called sinners will be called righteous. That's the gospel in the Old Testament. That's the gospel according to Isaiah. And we see the very heart of this gospel reiterated in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The good news of the gospel is this exchange that our sins are placed on the sacrificial lamb who dies an atoning death for us and that the perfect record of the spotless lamb is credited to us. By faith in Jesus, we give our sin to Christ and it is nailed to a cross, a bloody cross, and it is never held against us again. By faith in Jesus, we receive the perfect righteousness of Christ, the robes of righteousness washed in the blood of the Lamb. There is no way to tell this story. There is no way to understand this gospel without the obscene, the off-scene suffering and death of Jesus being placed center stage. So who is this Jesus? Or as Pilate puts the question, where is he from? There's something spooky about Jesus, this gentle but fearless man who preached the kingdom of God and healed the sick, but who incited a maniacal rage from a crowd who screamed for his blood. There's something spooky about Jesus, an innocent man, who stood before a representative of the greatest power on earth and said, you have no authority over me unless it's given to you from heaven. Pilate was afraid of Jesus. And I believe the raging crowd was also afraid for what is anger except our reaction to fear. So why was Pilate afraid of Jesus? I think because he realized that he was dealing with someone or something bigger than he had imagined. And why is the crowd afraid of Jesus? Probably because the very first word of Jesus' preaching is repent. Who wants to repent? Who wants to say, I'm heading in the wrong direction, I better turn around. Who wants to say that? Not me, that's for sure. I have my appetites and my passions, which often does not point me in the wrong direction. And then on top of that, I have my pride and my arrogance, which is which say, hey, I've got this under control. Or which say, how dare you question me? How dare you suggest that I'm wrong? Because when I'm challenged, I get afraid. And when I get afraid, I get nasty. And some of you have seen my anger flare. And yet, I know in the depth of who I am that I can have no life and no real life and no lasting life and no life that counts outside of Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. You people know me well enough to know that I might be the lousiest Christian that you've ever met. No one has ever pointed at me and say, oh, you should live like that guy. 
And yet, this is my confession before you today. I am a sinner, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and my calling as your pastor is to preach Christ and Him crucified. As obscene as that might be, Because in the death of Christ is my only hope and my salvation. So my question for you this morning is, who is this Jesus? Will you be afraid? Or will you worship? All glory to Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we do honor you and we worship you this day. Lord, we thank you for John, this disciple whom you love so dearly, who traveled with you and stood by you. Thank you that he loved you and that he knew you, that you had shown yourself to him and revealed who you are to him. I thank you that his words have been captured for us in the pages of scripture. Lord, I pray that those words might be alive for us today, that they might be sharper than any two-edged sword, that they might cut us to the quick. Lord Jesus, show us who you are so we might worship you. Amen.